0: Can't say I didn't warn you. There, there it is. Like, if you miss week one, go back. Seriously, we had an incredible time journeying through God's word together. And uh, I was reflecting over this last year, like, we're basically in spring, or at least Michigan is teasing us this week with what feels like spring. I'm just waiting for another April 15th like we had a few years ago. Where it was like ice storms everywhere, cars off the road. But I'm praying right now in Jesus' name that doesn't happen. Okay, pray with me on that. Uh, how many of you actually like winter? Awesome. There's a great bunch of churches down the road you can go attend from here on out. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I do not like winter. I don't like anything about it. I Wore short sleeve shirt and short sleeve shirt in absolute faith today that it's going to be sunny and it's going to be warm enough to even wear one. And uh, I was reflecting again on this last year. It's been a crazy year, as all of us could say. It's about a year ago that our world started to change in some pretty dramatic ways. Um, but I was reflecting on the years, about some of the like the f- weird family things I did last year. So my sister got married in my parents' driveway. That was weird, that was not what we planned. Um, I took up some hobbies that I hadn't previously been interested in. Um, I ate a lot of food and none of it was really good for me. Now that was interesting. Um, I got to know some of you a little bit better and your quirkiness and your weird habits. That was interesting. Um, I got to attend some weddings that were really fun but obviously very different than the weddings that those individuals had planned including my sister and got to watch as our world kind of fell apart. (laughs) So that was real fun. And then as we track along into this march, one of the weirdest things that happened in our own family is that we started to rekindle our love for board games. Does anyone, anyone have like a family like that? Like the TV is not a big thing, but you're a big board game. Okay, I see a few. Like a big board game family. So for us, it was, we started out really simple. It was Scrabble, which reveals how bad I am at school when I have to literally spell check everything. So maybe you're in the same boat as me. I made up words and just acted really confident like my siblings didn't know it was a real word. But I was like, oh, that's definitely a word. Ginormous? Yes, definitely a word. And and use those words. Scrabble is one of them. I thought about another game that our family recently got into over the last couple years or so was Settlers of Catan. So a little bit more strategy, a little long-term investment In that game, I lose pretty much every time. I don't care how much brick and wood I have, I seem to lose every time. I don't know why. Um, Then we moved along to really what for us is a childhood classic. It's the game of Monopoly. Now, Monopoly for me is interesting on a whole bunch of levels, but number one, you find out really who's the most shrewd and kind of clever among you because it takes a little bit of skill. Like you can't just kind of fudge your way through Monopoly. You're either uh, conquering the real estate market or you're not. It's pretty clear cut if you're winning. And so uh, my dad actually got invested and it was like, hey, I, I got a Monopoly game. Like we should play it this summer. So we were down visiting my family for the summer. All of our siblings were together. I was like, let's do it. So we sit around. It's it's my dad and I've got two younger brothers. So uh, I'm 29, one's 27, one's 25, and then my dad is older. And so he watches online. So just covering my bases here. Love you, dad. Um, so we're sitting around the table and in my mind, I'm the oldest child. I'm like, I'm going to destroy my dad at this game. I can't wait. Like I am so, such a competitive person. My younger brothers are competitive. people. We're, like, we're going to collectively like, no one's going to say it, but we're going to, the three of us team up and just destroy dad and make sure at least one of us, the peasants can win in this in this scenario. And so we're sitting there and the game progresses and I'm feeling pretty confident. Like, I'm starting to collect. I've got Boardwalk, four hundred dollars, baby. I got Boardwalk. Like anytime you swing by, like you're gonna pay me. Like I was starting to collect really, really good properties. Well, eventually, I don't even know what happened. Either my phone distracted me, or I was watching the football game. I'm not sure what was happening, but I started to lose money, like just over and over again. And finally, I kind of snapped back into reality. I was like, "What is happening here?" And what I had noticed is that my dad had slowly and very quietly bought up pretty much every other property around me and was just sucking the three of us dry. Like our money was just disappearing. It got towards the end of the game. I think I had $10 left. Like $10 left and he had somehow like fully monopolized monopoly over us and, and beat us terribly. Now, that's not funny when you're 29 years old. <laughs> that's not funny. I was just mad. And so I just... I left the room. I was like, I'm done with board games for this trip. I'm just done. I didn't pick up a board game the rest of that trip because I knew my dad was going to destroy me at whatever we did. Uh, But it was funny because, for instance, you could have like you could win the game of Monopoly, and you could have like huge stacks of cash. You could own all the real estate. But if my dad was like, Hey, I want to go pick up dinner. I'm just going to take some of the Monopoly money. Obviously, if you try to pay with that at a at a restaurant, they would probably laugh at you, but then they'd be like, yeah, we're not taking that. Or if you said, hey, I'm I'm really trying to save up for my kid's college funds. Like, he's got four kids, and he said, hey, I'm going to really dedicate all the stuff I've won in Monopoly. I'm going to stack it up. I'm actually going to buy a couple extra Monopoly games, beat all of you again, and then stack up what I have, and then I'm going to use that. I'm going to put that in the 529. I'm going to make sure that I can actually pay off your kid's college. Obviously, the institution would probably laugh, but not take the money because it's not real money. Uh, But so much of our own financial world sometimes is just like Monopoly. You gain all you have and you know that in an instant, we don't think this way, but it's the reality, in an instant we could lose it all. Some of you remember 2008, right? You had different levels of investment or different things stacked up and then people ended up losing it. And just like in real life, there's an element to gaining that doesn't really mean anything. It's not that you don't shouldn't invest or shouldn't try to save up money or be wise stewards of your money. But it's that at some point that exercise in building wealth or just trying to gain for gain's sake is a futile attempt. Like you, you and I know this, the problem we all live with right now, the problem we bring into this morning is that we can't make enough, acquire enough, invest enough, because at the end of the day, for us as human beings, it's never enough. There's always another thing. Like, okay, I have this amount in my emergency fund or my savings, but I'd really like to get to this amount. Or I have this saved up for kids' college, but I'd really love to, to, to have a little bit more, a little more cushion. Or I have this in the 401k or the IRA, but I kind of would like to have a little bit more just to feel a little bit safer. I, it, and really, at the end of the day, it's, it's never enough. And one of the questions that comes up for me is why do I do that as a Jesus follower still? Because it's, it's not that Jesus condemned people who are wise stewards with money, it's that he knew that if we just accumulated, we just stacked up money, and that's all we did with our money, we would actually become slaves to our money. It would grip our heart, because money follows our heart, and when God has our heart, the money will follow Jesus. And why do we do that? Why do we tend to overestimate what we can gain and underestimate what we can give? It's a question I I think about often because I don't drift into giving. I drift into gaining. It's so easy for me to not even think about, was I generous this week? But it's really easy to think about, here's what I'm going to buy next. Here's what I want to get next. Here's where we should invest next. And for me, one of the most stunning passages in all of Scripture is the one we're going to look at. 2 Corinthians 8 is this powerful text in which the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, who was wealthy, by the way. He's not writing to poor people. He's writing to people who had great jobs and had done really well for themselves, but had missed a critical part in their formation, in their discipleship to Jesus, and it had to do with their finances. And Paul writes to them using this example of another church and showing them the way to be generous. And so if you have a Bible or you have your device there, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1, you're going to want to track through this together because there's some things we're going to go back to in just a minute. But this is what Paul writes to this church in Corinth. He says, now, brothers and sisters, he's writing to this group of people, we want you to know, like I want you to be informed about the grace of God, grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Catch this, in the midst of a very severe trial, not abundance, not a, not a pay raise, not promotions, not a, a great giving year, great budget year, it was actually in the midst of a very severe trial. Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. In the midst of it, that trial that actually was a mix of joy and their poverty, it somehow welled up in rich generosity generosity. He says, I testify, this is a judicial term, I'm testifying that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their own ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. This is how the Macedonian church viewed generosity. It was a privilege to share in the work of God, and they exceeded our expectations, and catch this, this is critical. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, And then by the will of God also to us. Notice the order. We talked about this last Sunday, right? Notice the order that there is a issue of the heart that has to be dealt with before we can ever truly be generous people. Like if Jesus isn't first in your life, if Jesus isn't king of your heart, if Jesus doesn't get to be the organizing priority even for your resources, you are always going to resent generosity. You may even get to the place on your own of charity, Like You feel good, you write a check, and that's it. But generosity, it's a habit, it's an attitude, it's a lifestyle. It's something that Jesus forms within us as disciples. And when he has our heart, then we get to live out of this model. So verse 6, we urge Titus, another disciple, just as he had earlier made a beginning to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, Corinthians, in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness or integrity, and in the love we've kindled in you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. Like your formation is not complete until you deal with Jesus on this issue, until you allow him to resolve some things for you. You can excel in faith. You can be the church that has incredible faith. You can be the church that has all the right words or the best preachers or the best messages. You can even be the church that loves people and has integrity. But if you are missing this key component that Jesus addresses when it comes to generosity and our resources, you are not fully formed. There's something that he still has to do in you. He says, I'm not commanding you, but I want you to test, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others, referring back to the Macedonians' generosity. For you know, and you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the compassion of of Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty, you and I might become rich. This is the gospel in a nutshell. I mean, this is all you really need to know is that Jesus let himself be taken advantage of, stepped down, surrendered his place of authority, and and, and even his will to the Father's will, and you and I get to be the benefactors bringing nothing to the table. It's not like Jesus says, well, you got enough. I can work with that. He says, you don't have anything. You're going to need a divine intervention in your life in order to truly encounter my grace. This is why I think it's such a powerful thing to look back at the story of the Macedonians, I mean Macedonia was kind of a collection of cities in modern day Turkey. Macedonia uh, was kind of an epicenter in their area for Roman persecution. If you were a Christian, you were removed from your job or your local economy. Uh, some of the Macedonian Christians had simplified their lives in order to be more generous. Think of that, like truly minimizing what they owned, living like Christian minimalism, breaking things down and saying no to spending, saying no to impulse, saying no to Amazon Prime for a little while, to allow their lives to be more fruitful and more generous. This is the Macedonians, but that is not how my disposition normally acts. I tend to drift towards gaining, not giving. I tend to overestimate what I can gain, what I can accrue, instead of and underestimating what I can give. I mean, picture it this way. When a Roman official beats down your door, takes your small group leader, and says, you may not see this person ever again, is your first thought, how can I be more generous to a community? (laughs) That's not my first thought. When you are in a situation where you lose your job because your boss finds out and you get ratted out by your coworkers, hey, this guy hasn't been going to the, the temple and worshiping the emperor. I don't see him bowing to Caesar, to Nero, or Domitian. Any of those people, he must be one of them. He's a Jesus follower. On the spot, fired. You're done. Your your position, your status, and your income source wiped out in a moment. Is your first thought, "How can I be more generous to the community here"? How can I be more generous to a community that's not even in my area? When your kids don't get what they want for Passover or Christmas dinner, whatever they celebrate in Macedonia, is your first thought, how can our family be more generous to a community that's not even close to ours? This is literally Macedonia. Like I'm not, I can't make this stuff up. This is literally what was happening in their community. Paul is raising funds through the Corinthians and had invited the Macedonians to contribute to this massive relief effort in Jerusalem. You know how close Macedonia and Jerusalem are? 27 hours away. And that's in a car. 27 hours away. This is the distance from Macedonia, who he's saying is the example of generosity. They gave beyond our expectations and beyond their own capacity even. And they gave to this relief effort for Christians in Jerusalem. This would be like me saying to you, hey, I know we've had a great year financially, church. But some of our leaders, and I know some of you have brought this up to me, and I'm sensing this from the Spirit as well, we need to dedicate 50% of our next year's budget to the the really struggling church in Las Vegas. Some of you are really excited right now. You're like, I'm going. If you need a church planner, I mean, I can figure out a way to, to get a call from God. But to me, that's a really interesting dynamic. This is literally about the same distance. Like, it feels like a different world. Some of us have never even been to Las Vegas. None of us want to go to Las Vegas. Some of us have never even thought about taking a family trip to Las Vegas and certainly not dedicating entire portions of our family budget or our church budget to help struggling people in Las Vegas. But that's what's happening right here. Macedonia, Jerusalem, and they had just overwhelming generosity even towards people outside of their community. The biggest question we can ask of this text, how did they do it? Like, what, what gets into people like that? What, what stirs them? What, what drives them? And we, Paul gives it away in verse 5. He, he tells them, and you, you have this in the scriptures, that they gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Like, they had resolved the heart issue. They'd surrendered their wills to Jesus. They'd surrendered their lives and their own personal kingdoms to his kingdom. And then they were able to be freely generous to other people as the needs arose. This is how you do it. This is the model for true generosity. It's heart first and then to others. Randy Alcorn, in his book, The Treasure Principle, some of you may have read this, he talks about giving and he uses a story of in the early days in America, hundreds of years ago, when the Confederacy was still a thing and the Northern States were still a thing and they were at war with one another. Well, it was becoming apparent to a lot of wealthy people in the Confederacy that the Northern States were gonna win. And so what ended up happening was Confederate leaders and officials and even business people, really wealthy estates, began investing in northern states. People like Michigan began buying homes in Michigan, buying up real estate in Ohio or other places in the northern tip of the United States because they knew as soon as we lose this war, as soon as the Confederacy is absolved and there is no more Confederacy, all of our currency is basically monopoly money. It's just not worth anything. Like as soon as I take it to a northern bank, they're gonna be like, what is that? I don't understand that. I, I you can't buy anything with that for sure. I mean, so you picture the predicament where really wise people begin investing in in northern currency and making sure their money was being converted over. This is what he comments about this, and I think you'll start to get the point. So there's nothing wrong with Confederate money as long as you understand its limits. Realizing its value is temporary should radically affect your investment strategy. To accumulate vast earthly treasures that you can't possibly hold on to for long is equivalent to stockpiling Confederate money even though you know it's about to become worthless. According to Jesus, storing up earthly treasures isn't simply wrong. It's just plain stupid. Ouch. Ouch. I tend to drift towards gaining, not giving. I, I, tr- I tend to invest in the present instead of eternity. I, I tend to overestimate what I can gain and, and, and underestimate, really, what I can give, how I can live to be more generous. I sat with this text this week and just asked a simple question that's going to mess you up if you ask it. God, what are you trying to say to me in this? What are you stirring in my heart about this? And God convicted me just even about my own personal spending habits. It's not that I'm doing immoral things with them. Don't worry, last week I didn't decide to be a Coke dealer. Okay, (laughs) don't worry. Again, if that makes no sense to you, go back and listen to week one. Don't be alarmed. Um, It was just a joke. But if you look at that, I mean, I, I was just convicted about my own spending habits at times and how they often reflect the heart of gain, not of give. And so, The question I think God posed to me, I didn't hear his voice, I didn't see him right on my office wall, but I just sensed in my spirit was not, are you and Lindsay generous as a family? Because we've really taken some intentional steps. I've told you all about that, of how God has led us to be more generous over the years. The question was not that. The question was, John, are you a generous person? When you see a need, do you have this personal margin and drive to meet the need? When you know someone is hurting, are you willing to step up and just be generous to give even what is yours away to that person? Do you model the Macedonian way? See, some of us fall into the category I fall into. There's really two. There's two camps of people in this room. Some of us gain in order to spend. Who are my spenders in the room? All right, we're all going to go to Tanger later, (laughs) okay? Like, I, I, I understand it. To me, it's like, okay, gain in order to spend. That's what I wanna do, it's a better car, it's new clothes, it's nicer shoes, it's the ability to maybe get a bigger house someday or a nicer cottage or a lakefront property, whatever it is. And really, if you gain in order to spend, you fall into the camp I can fall into really easily of seeking approval. If you gain in order to spend, ultimately it's about approval seeking. How do I let them know that I'm doing well? How do, how do I let my neighbor know that I'm just fine? How do I let them know as I roll into the driveway with the new thing that they're like, oh, they're set. Really, that has to do with approval. That has to do with seeking value and identity in someone other than God. Approval seeking. This is a trap I can fall into. It may not be in the same areas that you are, but it's, it's gaining in order to spend. And the second group of you, a.k.a. Lindsay, are some of you gain in order to save right? Who are my savers in the room? You're like, yeah, I haven't spent money in years. Like, I haven't even thought about it. Like, I set money in places. I don't even know where it is anymore. Like, like some of you are in that camp. Some of you gain in order to save. You say things like, I want to protect my family. I want a bigger 401k to make sure that when I do retire, I'm set. I don't have any needs. I can be safe. Some of us gain in order to save and we say things like, well, I just want to leave something for my kids. Maybe you grew up in a family that wasn't wealthy and your family just was terrible with money and you vowed, I'm never going to be that person. I'm going to make sure I've got way more money than I could ever use or ever give or ever spend. I just want to stock it away as much as possible. You don't seek approval, but we certainly in those moments, gaining in order to save is really about seeking control. You're not concerned that people don't think you have the nicest car. You take pride in the fact you drive a 99 Mazda with 200 and a lot of miles on it. Like to, to you, that that's a, a gift. Like for you, it's not about the biggest house and the biggest place to go to vacation or the newest car. It's really about how do I micromanage my future, make sure I'm insulated from suffering or from pain or from an emergency, yeah, the thing that... You're wrestling with is not the thing maybe I wrestle with. Mine may be seeking approval, yours may be seeking more control. And Jesus repeatedly tells his disciples, Watch out for that. Watch out for greed. In fact, uh, as you study through the gospel stories and the parables and his teaching moments with the disciples, Jesus tells his disciples to watch out for greed 10 times more than watching out for sexual immorality. You know why? You already know why because no no one has woken up next to someone who's not their spouse and said dang i just realized you're not my wife (laughs) i just realized that you're not my husband i need to get out of here i didn't know that until right now i'm so sorry that we did all this like that's never happened i've never had anyone tell me that story it's the same with lying. Jesus says it 10, ten more times and he addresses being lying or, or promoting falsehoods. Because you, it's not like you're curious when you're lying, if you're lying or not. You know it. It's either the truth or it's not. And Jesus is, but he says over and over again, watch out for greed because it will sneak up on you. Watch out for just pursuing gain over give. It will sneak up on you. It will start to grip your heart. Greed, wealth chasing, selfishness, they sneak up on us. And all of you are just like me. We drift into gaining instead of giving. We overestimate what we can do with our control over money. We underestimate what what God really wants to do with our heart and through generosity. To me, this all wraps up so beautifully in verse 8. What we just read, Paul says, I'm not commanding you. And then he points to the ultimate act of generosity. You and I will ever witness. It's the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. He reminds them. He says, it's it's actually because you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor. So that through his poverty, through his sacrifice, through his laying down of his divine rights and privileges you could become rich. Maybe not rich in the ways that the world values, maybe not rich in the ways that your coworker values, maybe not rich in the way that you grew up thinking was rich, but maybe you become rich in marriage. Maybe you become rich in generosity to the poor. Maybe you become rich in being a minister, an agent of reconciliation in our world. Maybe you become rich in generosity. That's what Jesus is trying to point out. And, and Paul's reminding him this is the whole point because ultimately, whatever you treasure, whatever you value, whatever you seek to gain for, whether it's approval, control, or something else more material, it will demand you sacrifice for it. Whatever your idols are, they will demand you have to sacrifice for me. If it is a great job, if it's a better career, if it's more accolades, you're going to sacrifice your children and time with your spouse on the altar of that pursuit. Some of you have regretted doing that. If it's about approval, (laughs) buying clothes, getting nails done, hair, whatever it is, presenting your image perfectly curated in such a way that people say, wow, she's beautiful that idol will demand you sacrifice for it. That treasure will demand you sacrifice for me. You buy things you you can't afford. You, You make decisions that are irrational and don't make any sense. You hurt the people who actually do love you. But when Jesus is your ultimate treasure, he sacrifices for you. The model of the cross, he does the exact opposite of everything your idols and your other treasures and my other treasures demand that we do. He says, I'll lay down my life for you i will go first i I will model the true heart of god which is always generosity you've heard john 3 16. god so loved the world that he gave it's in his very nature it's in god's dna to give to you things that you don't deserve and yet so often we can drift towards a thousand other gods when jesus has your heart he's your treasure Gaining actually becomes a means to giving. This is what I love. I'm looking around this room, looking at you online. There's people in in our church that have figured this out. Gaining becomes a means to giving. It actually becomes more blessed to give than to receive. But when that is true, receiving becomes a gift too. Because you can receive and then you can be a conduit of God's blessing, His, His passion, His love for people it actually becomes a really joyous thing. This is what the Macedonians had figured out. See, the evidence of how you'll be generous in the future is how you're generous right now. And I've fallen into that trap too. Well, we'll give more when we make more. Well, I'll be generous. I'll give to those things if if we had a little bit more in the emergency fund. Jesus is saying, no, 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 you're missing a point here when Jesus is your treasure, when Jesus is your organizing priority, you'll be generous with what you have because you know that's an indicator of where your heart is at. And so for me, I was trying to think about this and trying to put it in terms that even my very simple mind could understand. I immediately drawn back to this phrase, and some of you know this phrase, follow the money. Like our, our political cycle has used this even in the last couple of years. Some of you are uh, seasoned enough in life to remember this 1976 film, All the President's Men. Like, I didn't even know where this phrase came from. I did some kind of cultural homework, figured out Dustin Hoffman and others who are in this movie. Uh, 1976 was the first time that phrase was actually used. This is documenting, like, the Watergate. It's this thriller. And uh, I I was watching some scenes from that, and I found kind of that iconic scene. They're in this dark parking garage, and this investigator and journalist are talking back and forth. He's not really giving him any clues about how to figure out what's going on. And and the guy simply just says, follow the money. It's like, what do you mean? He's like, follow the money. And I think if Jesus was here, I think if the Macedonian Christians were standing here and and sharing this message with us, I think that's what they would say too. If you want to know where your heart's at, just follow the money. Just follow it. It Maybe a better way to, to pose this, and this is a question I was wrestling with, what story will your money tell when you're gone? Will it be a story of gaining, just incredible gain, incredible investment, incredible just stocking up, building up the storehouse and never allowing it to flow back out to other people? Or will it be a story of giving, that you, you gained as much as possible so you could give as much as possible? Like there's nothing inherently wrong with making a great salary. You should. You should be the hardest worker in your business, I should be the hardest worker that you know. I mean, all of us should be working incredibly hard, but there's something missed when that becomes the only pursuit instead of a means to the greatest pursuit, which is giving. And so... And I was trying to think about how do you like really apply this? Because as you talk about giving, I mean, so many of us know the feeling of generosity. Like we've wrote a check before. We've put money in a plate before. We've maybe given to someone in our in our circle that needed something or was short on something. Or, or I remember in high school, I had this one friend who was always somehow didn't bring his wallet to dinner. Yeah, <laughs> You have those people? I'm like, dude, you need to just remember your wallet, okay? But I'll give you money and you can pay me back. I've still not been paid back, but... I was trying to think, of how do you actually apply this? And I thought, really, about that truth, that the evidence of how you'll be generous in the future is actually how you're generous now. If you want to learn how to be a giver, you just start with what you have right now. And some of you, money is the barrier. It is, it's margin. Things are tight. You're not in a good position to just write $100 checks and throw them at whoever is in need. And so I thought, on the way out, so not now, we're going to sing, and you can start to think about what you're going to do. On the way out, everyone in this room is getting $5. And with that $5, you have the opportunity. Am I going to use this for myself, and I'll never know, or am I going to be generous? And you can couple that with other money. If you're a family, you can put all your money together and do something extravagantly generous. Or maybe you've got hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars sitting in a bank, and you just want to put the 5 on top of that, and you want to give it away to somebody or, or bless an organization or do something else. But I don't want there to be any excuses for actually learning right now at any age, at any stage financially, in how to be generous. It's the best gift I could give you. It's the best gift Jesus wants to give us. And so really at the end of the service, seriously, on your way out, please, I don't know if you can go out the door here anyway, but go out the main door and someone will hit you with a $5 bill and an envelope. And again, uh, this is not to promote anything. It's not to make you feel good. It's to help us demonstrate generosity, to practice it in our own lives. And, and you're smart, creative people. You can literally do a thousand different things with this. You could buy someone's gas. You could get someone a Starbucks. You could pay it forward in the drive through line. You could uh, buy someone a, a flower or maybe multiple. I'm not sure. Clearly, they haven't done it recently, but Valentine's Day feels like an age ago. But whatever it is, like just get creative. Use this as a family. Disciple your kids in this. Disciple one another in this, and let's be generous. So let me pray for you and then we're gonna worship and respond with with a song. God, I really do thank you that you are right now just in the process of of teaching us. Teaching us what it means to be generous people. I thank you that as a church we have grown in this area. And so this comes, Lord, from a place of excitement and and inspiration rather than desperation and rebuking or or trying to be heavy-handed. I just thank you that you are the one who's rich in generosity and sets the way for us to move forward. So I pray that you would inspire us this week. I pray that you'd remind us of just the ultimate sacrifice, the generosity of God that led to the cross, that led to us being made whole again, that led to us being rescued from our own sin and selfishness and self-serving heart and, and set us free. Thank you for the model. Thank you for letters like this, for reminders like this, to just stir us back that even in the midst of severe trial and extreme poverty, we can show the world what it's like to be rich in generosity. We love you, and we commit it to you and ask that you move in this time. In Jesus' name, amen.